Hello, and welcome to the first episode of This Is How We Do It, the latest Women as One podcast series. I'm Rebecca Ortega, the Managing Director of Women as One, and this series is intended to explore what's actually working when it comes to achieving gender equity in medicine, and particularly in cardiology. And we'd like to share those ideas and those practices as far and wide as possible through this series. I'm pleased to introduce our first guest, who also happens to be the first man to interview for our podcast series, Dr. Jamie McCabe. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks very much for having me. Dr. McCabe is the director of the cath lab at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle. And the reason we invited him to join us today is because he recently participated in our cath lab director roundtable and shared some pretty startling statistics that we wanted to have a chance to dig into a little bit further. So... Jamie, it seems like you're doing something pretty magical over there at UW, given the percentage of women fellows who rotate through your program each year. Can you please share with us what the ratio of men to women is in your interventional fellowship program in the recent years, uh, maybe the upcoming years? Sure. Yeah, happy to. So last year, we were 66% of our interventional cardiology fellows were women. This year, it's 75%. Next year, depending on who stays for advanced years, it will be either 50 or 75%. And I guess that's all the years we know about so far. But, you know, I I guess I'd point out that I don't know that we're doing anything magical. I think we are just developing a program that is consistent with, you know, the population. As far as I know, about half of the people in the world are female and roughly half of our fellows are female. So that that's working. And I don't know that we're doing, I I don't, you know, we haven't sprinkled any pixie dust on anything. We just are engaging everyone in terms of their interests and trying to match people with the careers they want to have. Yeah. Well, I appreciate certainly you saying that, but given that only 13% of interventional fellows in the U.S. are women. I think you're, you're clearly doing something differently. And it was, I think, interesting to me, especially during that roundtable session, to hear you say something similar. Like, I, I don't know what we're doing. We're just, there are women that like to come to our program and, and clearly you're doing something. So I thought it would be interesting. And the reason you're here is that we could kind of unpack that a bit. And I think frequently people point to role models. So if you can see a woman doing what you want to be doing that, you know, that's attractive and that you think, oh gosh, you know, this person's like me and I can see myself doing this as well. Uh, and that may be a part of what's going on at UW, but I, I think maybe that's too simple a solution. So I guess I'll start by asking, and it sounds like the answer is no, is there a deliberate effort or do you know of any sort of effort to recruit women to your program, either by yourself or the other women or male faculty and should there be more of an effort, do you think, to do this? Yeah, the should be is probably the more interesting question, but I'll start with the first bit. I think there's a deliberate effort to recruit people that we think are exceptional. And I left the gender part out. I don't think that it is necessarily a deliberate effort to recruit women versus men or men versus women, but you know, all the general cardiology fellows rotate through and we have a chance to work with them as people and interact with them as humans and then also see their hands and their some preliminary assessment of their technical ability. And for one reason or another, a lot of the women who come through are technically outstanding as far as we can gather and are just really good people that you want to work with in the middle of the night if you have to or, you know, all day long as as the case may be. And um, they're the very thorough 
doctors and they've just been, we just are, I guess, blessed to have really good um, folks come through. And, and I think perhaps if we've done anything, it's that we have engaged their curiosity and their imagination about the possibility that they could be interventional cardiologists if they so choose. And, you know, maybe that doesn't happen everywhere. I'm not really sure, but that's, I guess that's something that we do do. You know, if you spot a talented individual, then you know they could be they could be purple and genderless. I don't really care. It's just you engage them in their curiosity about what they want in their life and kind of see if they can imagine a world in which they can do uh, what you do or you can train them. So you're far too humble, I think. But there is actually I just saw recently an effort by the Brigham to start recruiting, I think, more women into at least their cardiovascular program. And I'm going to hopefully try to get them on the podcast series in an upcoming episode to, to talk through what that could and, and should look like. But it's something interesting, I think, to explore because a lot of this, I mean, this whole series, the premise is about solutions and figuring out, okay, if there is no pixie dust, you know, there have to be some concrete things that we can point to, to actually scale out so that other programs can do what you're doing. Well, I will say that, you know, we have, I guess, maybe to be more concrete about certain things, we certainly have done a, a number of, there have been a number of kind of QI, QA initiatives around, say, safety, for example, that, that I think do resonate more along the lines of concerns that we often hear from women. So radiation safety is a clearly a concern for women, particularly childbearing age women. And, and we've worked really hard on our radiation safety protocols and sort of making that a tenable thing. And in fact, we have two of our current female interventional cardiologists are both pregnant right now. So I have to imagine that we're the only program in the country that actually has two actively pregnant interventional cardiologists, uh, fellows. And so, you know, making sure that they feel safe and feel like they can move forward in their learning and their careers while also actively participating in other parts of their life and that they didn't need to put their whole life on hold to perform this task of fellowship has obviously been a, a big part of, of what we have tried to do. And so there are some things that way that, that clearly are, are beneficial to everyone, but I think particularly resonate along some of the kind of standard concerns that we do hear from our female colleagues. Yeah, no, I would absolutely agree with you. I think radiation safety has been shown to be, you know, top five concern, at least in the United States, for women who are considering going into different subspecialties uh, and not choosing interventional cardiology. I mean, and along those lines, I've been shocked to learn about the lack, the true lack of standards across parental leave practices. And this is, you know, worldwide. There, there are no standards. I yeah. think each organization is left to kind of their own devices to figure things out. You've got the boards kind of giving you some guidance, but it's really you, those in sort of the positions to make those decisions within your institution that, that hold the key to determine whether or not things like, you know, leave is acceptable from a cultural yeah. standpoint. So let's talk about that. Do you, you've got yeah. two pregnant fellows. This is probably a pretty big deal for you, right? Do you have a parental leave policy? What, what does that look like over there at UW? Yeah, no, I think your point is absolutely correct that there is very little guidance and the leave decisions are both 
extremely personal to family planning and to each individual's family, as, but they are also systemically important, right? We have a small group of fellows and a small group of interventional cardiologists, and everyone needs to understand and appreciate and expect that, you know, you're going to pick up some slack while folks are out. The policies here, which I was not familiar with as of, say, a year ago or even maybe half a year ago, are pretty anemic. They don't speak to much. There's like two weeks of paid leave, something like that, or maybe it's four. I forgot now. But what I have encouraged my fellows to do is to just be transparent with what they want. And whatever they want is what we want to give them. The only thing that is difficult is kind of a moving when the goal line moves a little bit, that's really hard from a systems perspective. And so I've told both of them, I'm perfectly fine with three month, four month leave. You know, they felt really strongly they needed to get back in and they're missing things and so forth. And I having kids myself and my wife is a professional and she's a doctor and so forth. And I sort of told both of them, and I'm not saying I'm right and everyone's choice is very personal, but I sort of said to both of them that I'm concerned that the time you're choosing and these are first children, so they haven't lived through this yet. And I'm concerned the time you're choosing is maybe too little and you're not necessarily going to feel ready and the hours are really long. And I would prefer that you pick a, if it's on your mind and if you've talked with your partners and, you know, make whatever family decisions you make, but I would prefer that you pick a longer time now if you think you're going to pick a longer time later and then we'll plan for it. And as long as we plan for it to the extent we can, and of course, you can't plan for everything, but as long as we plan for it to the extent we can, then we're great. And if you, whatever you need is what we'll provide. But so that's what the language has been or the communication has been here. And they're choosing their own path a little bit and we're going to make that work. And you're just, you know, trying to balance a small group of people around making sure that every individual's you know, lives are, are cared for. Yeah, no, I think that's really tremendous. And it's great to hear that. And I'm imagining that the women and the men who listen to this will be impressed and hopefully uh, motivated to do the same thing in their own practices. Uh, two kind of follow-on questions here that are related. Mm -hmm. The first is in relation to call. And the mm -hmm. thing that always comes up around parental leave is if you take a 12-week leave of absence, even an eight-week leave of absence, how do you manage sort of being a man down, if you will, a woman down in distributing call across the rest of the group? And do you stack it on either side of that leave? And yeah. if so, why? That's the first question. And then the second thing is sort of touching on what you were getting to, which is this, I think, desire for women to compete with the guys, right? So, And we've heard this from a number of women about this particular topic is, I don't want to take a lot of leave. I want to get back at it. And I think part of that is probably just the individual's preference, but then part of that is also the competitive nature of what they're doing. And so mm -hmm. there's been an effort, I think, in recent years to encourage paternity leave, not necessarily mm -hmm. for the same length of time, but to, to yeah. go beyond the typical two to three days that you see guys taking when their yeah. families you know, have a baby. Both of those angles are a part of this equation. I don't want to talk about that. So how do you stack or do you stack call around when women take leave? Or, or maybe this is the first time you're experiencing that. Well, it is, you know, this is relatively foreign territory for us. We have two female IC faculty now. Neither are in active family planning mode that I'm aware of. So we are going through this new and it's frankly probably a little different when you're 
a fellow compared to when you're in practice. And, and I think there's probably different stressors, whether they're financial or kind of training based. And, and so the decisions are probably a little different. In terms of stacking versus not stacking, I don't think it's a tit for tat. I mean, it's not like, well, you're going to miss, you're out for three months, you're going to miss X number of calls. So we expect you to take up X number of calls afterwards. That said, they probably will do a little bit more call after because, you know, just as from a citizenship perspective and trying to keep everybody sane and, and make sure that no one gets too burned out and so forth, that will be important. So yes, I guess the answer is somewhere in between. We have added a little bit extra call, but it is absolutely not one-to-one. They don't, it's not like, well, you, they covered you for 20, you're going to do an extra 20 or something like that. And we'll see how that works. I mean, I don't profess to know what the right answer is here. And I think just because you're off of maternity leave doesn't mean that, you know, all your family obligations stop. That said, lots of people have children and their family obligations in every direction. So we're trying to figure out how to balance those things appropriately. I think to the same extent, and perhaps to reframe it, our mission with fellows specifically is to create or help mold outstanding doctors. And to that end, I don't think that anybody who comes in is intended. We we don't mean to make everybody cookie cutter. It's not like, well, you and this other guy and that other guy and this other woman all need to be exactly the same. You just need to be better than you were before as you continue to learn and grow. So, and frankly, that is true of the faculty as well. We have our own domains and our own disciplines and things that we are perceive ourselves to be kind of expert at. And I cannot do, you know, a CTO as well as my colleague Bill Lombardi can do a CTO. And he can't do, you know, X as well as our other partner, Kate Carney, can do. And so, you know, the goal is not to make everybody exactly the same person who's all perfectly as good at the same things. And on the faculty side, and that's true of the fellows as well. They don't, we want them to continue to progress and be good. And there's obviously some baseline kind of a floor they need to meet to be safe and to be, you know, the best doctors they can for their patients. But by the same token, I hope that what they hear among the leadership and among the faculty of our group is that everybody is striving to be better than they were yesterday or last week or last month. And it's less about I want to be better than Bill or Kate's better than me at this and I got to fix that. It's more that I need to be better because I'm continuing to grow and learn and it's a lifelong career. It's a lifelong education. And so what the fellows, this idea of competition among fellows, I I absolutely know that that is, I, I agree with you. I think that's absolutely true. But hopefully what they're hearing us say is, we're all continuing to try and get better and it doesn't stop at the end of fellowship or you don't just because you miss certain amount of fellowship doesn't mean that you're hosed forever. You're going to continue to learn. You're going to continue to grow and you have to just keep doing that. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, let's talk about paternity leave for a second. And you mentioned you have kids. Did you take paternity leave? I did. As mentioned, my wife is, she's a doctor. She's a pediatrician. We had our first kid when I was a end of residency and our second kid when I was in the middle of cardiology fellowship. And we had our kids 3,000 miles from our parents. We're on the opposite coast. 
which has its own stresses. And my wife was in training at the time of our first kid as well. And so we lived through a lot of this and know how hard it can be. I took paternity leave that I staggered relative to parents visiting. So, well, certainly for my second child, I took a week or two weeks, I can't recall, that was two weeks after the kid was born because we had family helping out for those first couple of weeks. So there's a little bit of a strategic move around just trying to help out at home and when I was most needed. But it was not a prolonged paternity leave and it was not, it was uh, different, obviously, than than my wife's maternity leave, which was longer. And, sure. Uh, yeah, no, I, I understand. And I, I think, though, that as you're talking, it's it's quite clear that, that empathy plays a part in the way you run your shop, if you will. And having been through this experience as a trainee, as a parent, as a physician, as the spouse of a physician, I think maybe positions you perhaps to be more understanding. And certainly it sounds like you're pressing on your fellows and probably your attendees as well to, to talk about what they need and to accommodate what they need. And I think that's a really unique way, from what I know at least, of of operating as an interventional cardiologist, because we also know that a lot of, especially men in interventional cardiology, do not have working spouses. And so, and the reverse is true of the women. So in often times you've got sort of the physician-physician marriages on the female side, but with men in particular, you have a lot of situations where for whatever reason, they their spouse doesn't work. And I think it just creates a completely different dynamic and a different maybe empathy towards those in dual working households. So I think that's maybe part of it, not that everybody can control that aspect of their lives, but I think bringing that empathy to the table seems to be making a difference, at least from what I can tell. So I move to a different topic because, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about is somewhat subjective. I think the policies around parental leave are more objective and that can improve. But objectively speaking, we also know there is a pay gap between men and women, and especially in the sort of more procedural subspecialties across medicine, you see that pay gap grow larger. So in the areas where physicians are being paid more, just generally, you have fewer women. I mean, you can see in orthopedics, for example, there are very few women because that's a very highly paid subspecialty. So this is true in interventional cardiology. We've seen it. Um, it's in the data. And one of the proposed solutions, at least sort of bandying about recently, has been transparency. So I would ask, and you may or may not have experience with this, but have you taken a look at the compensation across your group? Is that an important priority for you? Is that even a part of sort of what you're concerned with at this point? I'm wondering if that's part of this this process as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and I'm certainly no expert on this topic. We do work at a state institution. All of our salaries are published online. They're not fully representative of the income of everyone because there are multiple pay sources for different people. So I think they represent a snapshot, though maybe not a full snapshot. I have looked at it before, yes, and it's not equal across it's not equal across the men either. There is a baseline salary that is very fixed uh, based on years of experience and kind of level of professorialness, if you will. But then there are other, as I mentioned, there's, you know, certain people have negotiated other things. Now, for our two junior female faculty, I was heavily involved in recruiting them both and also did, played some role in 
trying to provide some guidance around their negotiations and what and I will just say that I was very transparent with them about my salary and what I got when I came and what I wish I asked for and what I was successful in doing or not doing. I don't know that they were any more successful than I was because I think it's pretty hard when you're negotiating your first job with and and what I always encourage our faculty to do is you may not get things but you have to ask and because if nothing else it's practice and you know you have to practice at asking and advocating for yourself and I talk a lot about this with we have a a nurse practitioner group that I run here as part of the interventional group there's six people and they happen to all be women I do not sort of set their salaries or you know do their contracts but I help them practice asking and we sort of do a little kind of role model or not role modeling we do a little sort of have them sit down and pretend that I'm the guy that they need to talk to about it and and so we go through that and it is more of a to be perfectly frank I don't think I help them a great deal here because the contracts are so rigid and so sort of state driven but I do think it's an important skill set to feel empowered to advocate for yourself and ask for things even if someone's going to say no or even if you think they're going to say no. And it's something that I've never really been all that good at, but I'm trying to practice too. So it's we're working on it together. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. And I'm going to kind of move into the last portion of this here, which is procedural. So mm-hmm. even if your salaries are set, you know, that's part of typically the compensation package, if you will. So mm-hmm. we know that women are engaging and being paid less often than men are by industry. And that is an important, I think, avenue to gain research funding. It's an important avenue to understand sort of new devices, new therapies, new skill sets to get out there on the speaker circuit. So having those industry connections is important and the compensation earned off of that is typically part of the larger compensation package. You can say the same thing actually in intervention for more complex procedures and sort of who gets what as far as the procedural volume goes. And so we've launched the CLIMB program just this last week, although... I'm not sure when this is going to air uh, <laughs> on July 1st. <laughs> that's focused on those two issues specifically because I think they're related. And you were very kind and you participated in the Cath Lab Director Roundtable to talk about some of this. And I want to ask, you know, if there is anything that you're doing or maybe what what's your approach to training and giving case opportunities to those more complex procedures. Is is there a deliberate approach that you have? Is it kind of in line with what you were saying before? It's just kind of how you do things. Have you even thought about that? Yes, we've thought about it. I can't tell you that I've thought about it from a gender perspective because I probably haven't, but we do certainly think about it from a a systems and a kind of a team-based uh, perspective. And so Kate Carney, who is an outstanding interventional cardiologist that we trained here and were very lucky to sign as a faculty member. She had a lot of options and I'm glad she decided to stay. She is part of the complex coronary team as are a few but not all of our interventional cardiologists. And so we have a belief that it's really important to sort of have a team-based approach so that if one person gets sick or is away or whatever, the whole program does not stop. And and so Kate continues to get mentorship. 
around complex cases. She is now a few years out and is starting to do a little mentoring herself in kind of a tiered way with other faculty. She does a lot. She does a very big book of business and I got to give credit to our whole team, but also to her clinical mentor, this guy, Bill Lombardi, who is really a strong advocate for her and they share a lot of cases together and we share a lot of cases and the trading goes in all different directions. And I think part of that is just trust and having a team that trusts one another, not only to perform admirably and take care of patients the way that it, that, that person needs to be taken care of, but also that there isn't going to be, I, I don't know, all those little insidious things that can, can kind of rot at teams around feelings of stealing the limelight or stealing referrings or, you know, whatever those things might be. We, I think, have worked hard to ensure that those don't exist and therefore the ability to work in a programmatic fashion has been really good. And and frankly, it, it's true of all of our junior faculty, I hope, not just Kate, but also Kate. And then we have a, a new uh, outstanding faculty coming on shortly named Christine Chung, who's moving across the country to join us as a structural heart interventionalist. And we're really excited about her. And she's someone that you know, you don't walk into the program having volume. You have sort of, you know, there is a, a volume building aspect. But in the meantime, you need to be given some mechanism, some tools to to do that. And that includes some cases so that you can contact the referrings and say, hey, you know, I did this case and it went great and feel free to reach out again and, and whatever. And those things can obviously propagate. So we are trying to do that for for everyone who comes in and it so happens that we're hiring a lot of outstanding women so we're doing it for them too yeah no and it sounds like you absolutely have a leg up on all of this whether you intended to or not and at least from this conversation i think the key takeaways would be sort of empathy and then deliberate advocacy right so just listening and understanding and then making those adjustments because you know when the whole team is functioning well and everyone is happy then everyone wins and i think you would probably find that a lot of people don't care <laughs> about diversity and about, you know, bring this is true probably for minority physicians as well, but about diversifying, you know, different physician groups. And that's clearly a wave of change heading everybody's way. And so to be in a position where you're already doing the right stuff is fantastic. And I think that other programs have a lot they can learn from you, even though you don't think they do. But I appreciate the time today. And I think clearly you're doing a great job. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, the call. And I guess I should just circle back very quickly to the one thing you brought up before, which is to note that anything we're doing right is probably because of my wife, who you, you mentioned, well, you've got a professional wife and you're absolutely right. And whatever we're doing right, I'm going to give uh, Leanna McCabe a great deal of credit because she's a, she's a badass. <laughs> well, it, it absolutely sounds like it. And I give her my thanks as well. 